to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And we are going to continue today in our study through the greatest sermon ever preached. The one that Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been talking about this and examining it from this perspective of living the kingdom life when you're not in the kingdom. Okay, we, we, a few weeks back we talked about, uh, about when Jesus would return and establish his kingdom here on earth where he would rule and reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And he, uh, uh, we, we, we talked about there, everything that's going to be done is going to be by the rule and the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, there are going to be people that are living in that kingdom age that are not believers and not followers of Jesus Christ. Some of them are going to be born after the kingdom during, the, during that thousand year reign. And so there are going to be a lot of things that are happening during this thousand year reign. It won't yet be perfect, but it'll be a whole lot better than we've got now. And the kingdom, living that kingdom life uh, is something that I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to. Here's my problem. I'm not there yet. I'm not in that kingdom, but I still am instructed in scripture to live the kingdom life because even though... that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's right here. As we look around the world that we do dwell in, it's hard to see it as God's kingdom taking place, isn't it? Is it hard for you? It is for me. But how is it that we can live this kingdom life before we get to the kingdom? Do you understand what my premise is as we start off here today. Well, today we're going to talk about two things that are issues in your life and my life constantly, every day as we go through our lives. As religious people, if I can use that terminology somewhat loosely, but as religious people, I think these are two, these are a couple of issues that we face on a daily basis. We want to do what's right, don't we? We want to do what's the right, moral, biblical thing to do as we go through our lives. Um, and sometimes that becomes such a, a pressure on us or such a desire for us that we begin to live a, a religious life that dots every I and crosses every T. That we uh, strive to do perfection. Why? Because we want God's approval. Well, that's the issue that I think we face. We face it on a daily basis. How should I live and why should I live that way? If I do what's morally right, is God going to be more in love with me than if I do what's morally wrong? Or is there some other way I'm supposed to live? Now, today... Today, we're going to talk about some, some uh, issues or some, some terminology, some words that you're familiar with. And I want to make sure that we are 
all on the same page as we talk about them. Two or three of the words that I think are important that we'll discuss today, and one of them is the word the law. The law. Now, if there are, there are laws everywhere we go, right? I mean, if you, if you drove here to church today, you did so under, uh, under the guidance and under the direction of certain laws. The highway or the road that you were on had speed limits. The uh, several of the stop or at the corners that you would come to intersections, there would be a stop sign or a stop light. There are rules and regulations all around us. Now that's true in our personal lives and our daily lives as well. And so the law gives us some measure of understanding of what's right and what's wrong. What can we do? And what can we not do? <clears throat> when we talk about the law, we're not talking about the law of gravity or the law of thermonuclear dynamics, those kinds of laws. We're talking about the law that God gave to Moses to give to Israel to give to the world. That there were certain things that were right that you should do, that you can do, and certain things that you shouldn't do or you are not to do. Um, now, the law itself has several aspects to it. Uh, there was the, um, the moral law, if you will, the Ten Commandments, although there's more than just the Ten Commandments, but the moral law, the rules, the regulations, the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots. Then there was the ceremonial law, and the ceremonial law was was what does God instruct us to do with regards to worshiping him? I.e., the, the, uh, the way that sacrifices were offered, what days they were offered, how they were offered, which sacrifices were to be offered. All of those kinds of ceremonial laws were laid out and governed uh, as part of the law. And... Uh, that, I mean, the, the Jews had daily offerings, sacrifices. They had uh, every, every Sabbath day, there, there would be a, a sacrifice. Every new moon, there were the monthly offerings and sacrifices. There were sacrifices for sin, sacrifices for uh, intentional sin, for trespasses. There were sacrifices that were made for life events like having babies and getting married and all the, the there were there were a number of ceremonial laws included in the law now the reason i'm telling you this is because jesus is going to talk about fulfilling the law okay so that's why i wanted to talk about that and then there are other parts of the law the dietary parts of the law and uh, the kinds of clothes you could wear and whatever it might be. So the law is part of this of our study today. And another word that is going to be prominent in today's message is the word grace. Now, why do I want to talk to you for a moment about grace? Because those two words have become over the course of 2000 years in Christianity juxtaposed to one another you're either under the law or you're under grace and we don't understand that grace has always been part of the law 
uh, and we don't see the relationship between them. What grace is, is God giving to us just because of who he is, giving to us what we do not deserve but that he wants us to have. Things we can't get on our own, like forgiveness and heaven. And so grace is, seems to be in a contradiction to the law. Do you live so that you can please God and make him happy? Or do you already make him happy uh, because of who he is? The answer to that is yes. Okay? And so uh, we're going to talk about the relationship between law today and grace. Now, Jesus, I, I just want to say, I want to reiterate this just to make sure if, if this hasn't come through at this point yet, that there is more confusion in Christianity today about this, I think, just about than anything. As to what, how should I live? If I'm saved by grace, how should I live? And uh, do, do Christians today have sets of rules and regulations for the way you ought to live your life? Well, you haven't been around church if you, very long in your lifetime if you don't think we do. We have rules or, or laws or expectations um, about how the way people dress and what people say and what they do. And, and, and there are a lot of issues that are coming in from the world around us into the church that are, that the church has opinions about or Christians have opinions about. How do we handle those things? How did Jesus handle them? So that's what we're gonna be looking at today. That's all groundwork to get us ready. But I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter five. And um, I want you to find with me verse 17. And the, the thing that I want to address today is, is the law, um, is there any place for the law or is there a relationship with between law and grace in the world we live in today? This is important because we're talking about how to live the kingdom life in the world that isn't necessarily kingdom oriented. All right, are you ready? I want you to, to follow along with me as I begin reading at verse 17. Jesus speaking in his sermon where he says in verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, and the law and the prophets refers to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. You know, I guess you know this. This is a spoiler alert in case you don't. When Jesus came and lived his life and sacrificed his life, he established a new covenant. There, were, there was an old covenant. The old covenant says, I will, you do these things and I'll be your God and you'll be my people and I'll deliver you. This is what God, the covenant that God made with Israel. That included the law, the moral law, the ceremonial law, the dietary law, all those laws. Um, there was an old covenant that was expressed and taught and lived throughout the a period of the, of the giving of the law of Moses 
and uh, the prophets who spoke on God's behalf, okay? So he says, I want you to understand, I did not come to destroy the Old Testament. New Testament Christians don't believe, don't fall into the trap of saying the Old Testament doesn't have anything to do with you. If anything, what the Old Testament is, is the root to the flower. You can't really understand the plant or the flower that's growing unless you understand the root system. And that, that's something that if you've ever grown a flower garden or a vegetable garden, you've got to know how to work that soil. You've got to know how to get water into that soil, but not too much water. How to get food into that soil, but not too much food. All of these kinds of issues that you have to learn um, that's, those are, they're just there. They're there for you. So he says, I didn't come to destroy the old covenant, the old way of thinking. He says, but I came not to destroy it, but to fulfill it. And the word fulfill in the Greek language there that he uses is a very complex word. And it means to satisfy, to, uh, to complete Literally, I mean, it, the, the word comes from this idea of taking something and pushing it, pressing it inside of a box till all of it's in this box. So here Jesus is saying, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to take it, fulfill it, complete it, satisfy it, every last ounce of it. In fact, he goes on and he tells us a little bit more about that. Verse 18, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away. And we've talked about that. Um, we talked about that when we were talking about the second coming of Christ. After the thousand year reign, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And John writes in Revelation, because the old heaven and the old earth have passed away. Here Jesus says, uh, until heaven and earth passes away, not one jot or one tittle of the law will by no means pass till it's fulfilled, till all is fulfilled. Now, this, I'm going to go into more detail with that, with that verse in just a moment. But what, what he's saying there. Uh, in, in, this, uh, in this statement, this sentence that he has there, twofold. The law is going to be here as long as the heaven and earth is going to be here. But when the heaven and earth is destroyed, the law won't be here anymore because then we'll be in heaven and there won't be a need for the law. There's a reason why God gave the law and it's not just for a list of do's and don'ts, but it's an instruction manual on you so you can understand you are not perfect. Hello? I, I don't mean to, make, to offend anyone. You are not perfect. None of us are. But sometimes we think we are. And we think we can do, that we can keep the law and satisfy the law. And Jesus is going to tell us, we can't. We can't satisfy that law. Um, but Jesus said, I came and I fulfilled the law. And, and the law is still going to be in, into effect. But as a believer, 
It's not just merely about keeping the rules and dotting the I's and crossing the T's. It's about understanding that you have a Savior who's done that for you. And none of it, none of the expectations of the law are going to go away until God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that, I believe, in, in a moment. Um, going on, verse 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does, whoever does the law and teaches them to others, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This, this verse intrigues me because I know who Jesus' audience is. He's not teaching this to Pharisees and religious zealots from the Jewish community. He's teaching this to his disciples, the ones who are going to go out into the world. They had a, a struggle amongst themselves that you see it several places in the New Testament, in the Gospels where these men were always debating who was the greatest. Who was the best? Who's the best follower? Who's the best disciple? The best forgiver? The best prayer? They all wanted to know, Jesus, don't you think I'm the best? Here's Jesus' definition. The best is defined by those who live the law and teach the law. He's telling that to his disciples. So do you think it's important you keep the law? But he says, but those who don't keep the law and teach other people not to keep the law, they are the least in the kingdom. Now I want you to read on with me at verse 20. And he's going to make a, uh, uh, an explanation to those of us who are reading this, who, who have always heard that we're not under the law, we're under grace. Here's what he says. I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, and who in the world could measure up to that? I mean, the Pharisees and the scribes, they had rules and regulations. They had law uh, applications for everything. They had applications for what kinds of silverware you could use when you were eating. What kind of chair, how many legs had to be on the chair or on the table that you're sitting under. How to wash your hands. I mean, we've learned over the last year and a half how to wash our hands, haven't we? But they had a certain way to wash your hands. And, and, and so on and so on. All of these things they said were part, by keeping these things you would, you would grow in righteousness, right relationship with God. And he, but Jesus says, unless you're, you're your righteousness is bigger and better and stronger than the Pharisees and the scribes. You need to understand you won't even enter into the kingdom. God's standard is not that you do your best and that you're sincere about it. God's standard is perfection from your life. And that's a problem because we've already said, we all know that it's true, I think, that... None of us are perfect, and none of us can be perfect. But that's the standard that God has for us. So he sets this law to show us we're not perfect, but I have a Savior who is. 
And if you will, by grace, through faith, receive forgiveness through him, you'll be made perfect. You'll be declared perfect. So I want to I put some, uh, some meat on these bones that we've uh, laid out in, in reading here. Coming back and fulfilling some of the thoughts that, we, uh, that we've had through what Jesus said. And the first thing that I want you to see with me this morning is that Jesus came to fulfill the law, not my words, his. I don't think I didn't come to fulfill the law. I didn't, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to, to satisfy, to accomplish, to take every part of the law and cram it down in the box and write on it, completed accomplish that's what i came to do if jesus would have been a 20th are we in the 21st century 21st century christian jesus would have said ah the law no big deal doesn't matter that was for jews that was for israel that was for then that's not the way we do it now jesus says don't think that that's why i came i didn't come to change uh, the rules I came to fulfill the rules and to do what you can't do. And if you will realize, because the law shows you where you can't measure up, that you are not perfect, but if you'll come to me and seek forgiveness, God will declare you to be perfect. We, use, we throw around terms uh, in church all the time that we think we understand, terms like justified and righteousness and all of those things and all of those are things that we on ourselves can never accomplish but God will declare them on our lives will proclaim them on us so therefore I want to tell you this imperfect guy up here this guy who preaches up here just about every Sunday of the year this guy is not perfect can't be perfect but i want to change what i just said and tell you i am perfect because i've been perfected by grace god's grace and that and is received through faith in jesus christ and when when i made that commitment to him and this go i'm just using myself as the illustration here when we make that commitment to jesus christ we are declared to be justified, just as if I'd never sinned. I am declared to be righteous, absolutely righteous with God. Oh, I get that, guys, like Abraham and, and Paul and Billy Graham and those people. They're righteous, but so am I. And that's all because of grace. Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law and Jesus did fulfill the law that in you, you see it there in, in verse 17 that I didn't come to destroy but to fulfill it on your behalf it's important for us to note at this point that Jesus kept the law perfectly okay he wasn't just a good moral teacher or a good moral guide and the best person who's ever lived. Jesus was perfect. 
and especially with regards to the law, every aspect of it, he, he was right on. And so I can't go to anybody else in the world who's ever lived because none of us are ever perfect, but Jesus was, I can go to him and the perfect one uh, declare, can declare me to be righteous. Of course, he's God too. Okay. So, but I want to, uh, I want to talk to you about two aspects of the way that Jesus fulfilled the law. Uh, first of all, Jesus fulfilled the moral law. The Ten Commandments Jesus kept. I'm, I'm pretty good on, the, on my checklist on the Ten Commandments. I've got, I have, there's still seven, eight of them, something like that, that I haven't, I haven't violated. But you know what? The Bible tells me if I violated one to any degree, I'm guilty of them all. The moral law, what I, what I should do, how I should live, what is right and what's wrong. You know, back in the old West, uh, <clears throat> there were, Cattle rustlers, you, you've, those, any of you watch westerns? And there, there were cattle rustlers, and, and these cattle rustlers would go out and steal other people's cows. And if you got caught doing that, uh, unless you got caught by the guy whose cows you're rustling, uh, you probably were caught by a lawman, and they would take you and try you, and they would what they call string you up. They would hang you for being a rustler. Everybody understood that. Um, uh, but also, um, a person can be hanged, could be hanged in their day as well as in ours, for murdering another person. Now, those are two different crimes, right? But the net result was... The, hang, the rustler who was hanged or the murderer who was hanged were both hanged, and they both died. It didn't matter which rule you broke. You're still going to be just as dead with one as with the other. That's what Jesus came, and he fulfilled the moral law. He did what was right. He did what was morally the right thing to do, and he's the only person who's ever lived that has perfectly kept God's moral law. So he is the only one that fulfilled the requirements of the law, the moral law. Secondly, this is the one that I think we overlook sometimes. Jesus also fulfilled the requirements of the ceremonial law, of the sacrificial system that was put in place <clears throat> by God for all these different situations and sacrifices. Ceremonial law governed the way that Israel worshipped. All people were sinners. They were guilty of breaking the moral law. And so God instituted a sacrificial system that goes back to the very beginning. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned the first sin, that uh, the, it goes all the way back to then, how God would establish the um, forgiveness or the or atonement for breaking and violating the moral law. And that was through an animal sacrifice. 
Remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden and God says, you can eat of every tree uh, uh, in the garden. You can freely eat except for that one right over there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You violate that, that moral, uh, that moral law, moral part of the law, um, you're going to die. You, you remember this when this was instructed? Here's how you know that when Adam and Eve were created, they were teenagers. I'm being facetious there with that. Because you told, they, they were told, don't do that. And that's the thing that they set their mind on doing. Went right out there to do it. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. So they went over there and they, uh, they ate of the tree. And the moment that they did, the Bible says they died. They were still physically alive, but they died. And Jesus or, or God shows up and he always shows up at, at the time when you're trying to hide from him. And he shows up and he says, Adam, where are you? Uh, those of you who've been around me long enough, you've heard me say this before. When God asks you a question, he's not asking for information. He's asking for confession. Where are you? What have you done? Well, of course, Adam, because he was a man, blamed his wife. The woman that you made and gave to me, that's her fault. Okay, woman, what have you done? Well, the snake that you made, he tricked me. And they're always casting blame on someone else. And God already knew what had happened. They were hiding themselves with fig leaves, but what God did was he took the skins of an animal and he covered them in that. Now, what kind of an animal was that? We don't know. Be really cool if it were leopard skin or something the first leopard skin skivvies um, but we don't we don't exactly know but i do know this if they if he was if they the skin came from an animal an animal was skinned in order to put it on them to cover them sacrifice is instituted in the garden and it's and then it was included through the law uh through the system that Moses instructed, the Levitical laws and all those things about the way you got to sacrifice and what kinds of animals you can sacrifice and all that. And um, every, this is, these, all of these instructions were a part of this ceremonial law. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says, All things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness. For sin every year in Israel, a perfect lamb uh, is brought to the temple uh, on uh, the tenth day uh, of the ninth of the sixth month, seventh month of the year. Usually in the fall, uh, September. Usually on the Day of Atonement, and that lamb will be brought to be sacrificed. Now, I don't have time to go through the entire Day of Atonement. But every year that would take place. Every year, the first month of the year, on the 15th day, an animal, a lamb, a perfect lamb was killed and sacrificed as their Passover lamb. And they were given instructions on how to eat it and what to do with the, any parts that were left over. All of those things were a part of this system. But they all involved sacrifice. When Jesus came and he was sacrificed 
on the cross. Have you noticed we don't have an annual uh, crucifixion of Jesus? Day of Atonement they have every year. Offer this, this, this sacrifice <clears throat> on that Day of Atonement. And when that sacrifice is done, next year you come back, same bat time, same bat station, and you do it all over again because the animal sacrifice was like the, the animal sacrifice that God put on Adam and Eve. I just, I just bet, it's not, I know you're not supposed to say things like that, but I am just absolutely convinced that that was probably not the only time that Adam and Eve wore <clears throat> a suit of clothing from an animal. I mean, there were probably repetitive sacrifices. When those wore out, another animal would be sacrificed for their clothing. That's what I'm getting at. <clears throat> the sacrificial system of the ceremonial law would never fully satisfy the sacrifice. It had to be done again <clears throat> in order for forgiveness and righteousness and justification to be distributed. But when Jesus was sacrificed on the cross and he died on the cross, the book of Hebrews calls that a once-for-all sacrifice. He's never gone back to the cross again. You and I won't go to the cross to pay penalty, uh, the penalty for our sin. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. I wonder if that's the reason why God allowed the temple in Jerusalem to be destroyed and inoperable now for two millennia. So that there couldn't be any more animal sacrifices. Just to prove that Jesus' sacrifice is enough. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the moral law and I came to fulfill the ceremonial law. And that changes then, Christian, the way that we have to live. You don't have to... Have to uh, Violate some law, some moral law, sin, in other words, and run down to the temple and get saved again. Are you hearing what I'm saying? When I am covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, sacrificed for me, even though I'm not perfect from then on, I'm still covered from then on. And I don't have to go back to the church every week in order to get resaved. I don't have to be good tomorrow or else I'm going to lose it again. i got to pay extra money to the church to get out of it. You know, pay indulgences, whatever they are. I am once for all saved through what Jesus Christ did. Need to hurry on. Um, number two, Jesus came to fulfill the law. Number two, I want to talk for a moment about the permanence of the law. Verse 18 of Matthew 5, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or tittle of the law will by no means pass away until the law is fulfilled. Okay, let's talk about jot and tittle. Heard this all of my life. Uh, it sounds like an old English terminology doesn't it this sounds like something that would come out of the king james this was a this was a statement that probably william shakespeare would have come across 
through his, uh, through his lifetime, through his writings. But let me just kind of clear this up for you, what a jot or a tittle uh, are all about. I, I first of all want to put up uh, for you a Hebrew letter. Uh, and this is one of the 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. It's the 10th one. And it's the, uh, it, it is called in, uh, in Hebrew, a, um, a yod. It's the smallest of all the Hebrew letters. Okay. It's also, it's, it's so that we can understand what we're talking about. Here. So it's approximately going to be the size of an apostrophe at the end of one of our words. Okay. It's just a little, In Greek, that same uh, letter, in the Greek letter, is the Greek iota. Um, if, you, if you look at that very long, you will see a word that comes from the Greek word, or the Greek word in English is called iota, right? And iota means a real small amount. In fact, literally, iota means the smallest amount. Smallest amount that's possible. Uh, and so the Hebrew letter Yod is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And it's also in Greek recognized, same letter in Greek that would equate to the Yod. That Greek letter gives us the word iota, the smallest amount, a smidgen. Okay, that's the idea. Um, that's what a yod is. That's what a yod means. Then I want to talk to you about a, a tittle. And uh, this tittle, in order to do that, I need to put up a couple of other uh, Greek letters for you. Now, these letters may look to you, I'm sorry they're not bigger, but I got more to go on the screen. Uh, these letters may look the same to you, but they're not. The one on your left uh, is the uh, Hebrew letter resh and the one on the right is the Hebrew dalet um, resh or rosh some versions some lexicons might say what you what you see in them they look fairly similar but if you look real closely in the upper right hand corner of each one of them you'll see them a little bit different the, word, the letter resh is to, re, is to be written in one stroke. Okay, you don't lift your pen off the paper, you, it's one stroke. Dalet is two strokes. It goes across, then down. And there's a reason for that. Over in the upper right-hand corner of the dalet, I want to enlarge that a little bit and show you this letter, you can't see it, but it's circled. There's a red circle around a little stroke mark at the just before you go down that, um, that separates the word from being either Rosh or Resh and Dalet. That's a tittle. It's a little tiny mark. The word that Jesus used here uh, was, the, was the word... Um, that translates uh, writing or a stroke mark. 
So whereas Resh is one stroke, Dalet is two, and the only thing that makes the difference is that upper right-hand corner. But it's interesting to me, there is also a tittle on that Yod, or that uh, Yod uh, Hebrew letter that we saw a moment ago, and you see it, and it's there on your upper left uh, of that bottom Yod, you'll see a little serif, little mark there, that's called a tittle. That's, here's what Jesus was saying. Not the, when it comes to the law, you think I came to destroy the law? When it, come, when it comes to the law, I want you to understand that not one, not the smallest letter in there, nor the smallest stroke mark in the law will be done away with until everything is done away. Now, what does that say to you? What does that say? Jesus fulfilled, he didn't just fulfill the big stuff, you know, the forgiveness of sin and all. He fulfilled the yodes and the, uh, the, the jots and the tittles. Every, there's not a thing you can do that Jesus' death on the cross cannot cover because he fulfilled it all. He satisfied it all. He completed it all. And, and that's going to be true until God takes us all the way home to his eternal heaven. He will be the fulfillment of the law. The law is permanent until heaven and earth pass away. In other words, until the earth is destroyed and evil is vanquished, until the lost are judged and the believers are in heaven law is going to stand. Do you understand what that means? I'm not telling you what you what the preacher's telling you is not telling you to do is to go out this afternoon and go buy in a sheep and sacrifice it. You don't have to do that anymore. Your sheep has already been sacrificed. But I'm telling you that the requirements of the law are still in vogue and will be forever. Jesus met them all. So you can try to handle this religious stuff on your own all you want to but Jesus has already taken care of it for you does that mean the law doesn't count oh no the law matters you're going to fall short of the law but that's where grace kicks in where sin abounds grace doth much more abound um, now that's, this is a big change if you were one of those people on the side of the hill. That's a big change. You're hearing something that's staggeringly different than anything you've grown up on. Later, Jesus was, uh, was confronted by one of the scribes, one of the lawyers, Jewish lawyers, and he came to him in Matthew 22, verse uh, 36. Uh, this, uh, this scribe comes to, to Jesus um, and he says, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? What's the greatest commandment in the law? And uh, uh, the teacher says, by the way, I'm, I'm, uh, let, me, let me hold that, okay? Because I have put these out of order, but I'm going to put it in here. Okay, we're going to go on to the next slide, if you will. And my next point Point number three is the consequences for our response 
to the law. Um, Jesus said, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, he'll be called least. Whoever th does them and teaches others to, to do them, to live them, follow the law, he will be great in the kingdom of heaven. This idea of being great in the kingdom of heaven was, was to them very, very important. I hope it is for you too. I, I, don't, I, I don't want to get into heaven by the skin of my teeth. And I'm not gonna have to, I'm gonna get there by the, by the grace of God through what Jesus did. But I don't wanna just show up and say, well, you got nothing to be credited in your account for. You haven't done anything for the king. I don't want that. I want to be great in the kingdom. How do I do that? I follow, I live the law, and I teach others to do the same thing. That's greatness according to what Jesus says. But, the, but here's where we'll come back to this scribe. The scribe that comes along and says, says to Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in law? In other words... I know I'm not perfect and I'm not going to keep them all. So which one is the one that I better keep in case I don't do any of the rest? What's the greatest commandment for me to teach? Here's what Jesus told him. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And then Jesus goes on and he answers part that he didn't ask. You want to know what the second is? The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, Jesus said, hang all the Old, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament uh, covenant, the Old Covenant, the, sac the ceremonial law, the, the law of Moses, all, all these hang on. Love the Lord your God with everything that you've got and love other people and serve them. If you do these things, you'll fulfill the law. There are consequences, however, for not fulfilling the law. Um, these, uh, these consequences uh, for unbelievers, lost people are going to be judged by the law. This was God's standard, and you didn't measure up. But wait, I went to church every Sunday. I taught Sunday school. I preached sermons. Those things won't, won't get you into heaven. None of them will get you in heaven. Um, but only by receiving the grace that God offers through Jesus Christ and what he did. Um, so there are, the unbelievers are judged by the law. The believers are held accountable to the law. And God says that those who break the commandments and lead others to do so are the least, but those who keep God's commandments and teach others to disobey or to obey God are the greatest in the kingdom. Consequences for our response to the law. Number four, hurrying along. I want you to, to think with me for a moment on the futility of self-righteousness. Let me tell you what that means, what I've just said. See it on the screen. Futility. Inane repetitions that can never accomplish what you're trying to do. Moms, you might have that when you look around the house of the kids and the it's cleaning up around here is futile. Okay? 
because in about 20 minutes, I'm going to have to come back and do it again. Imagine if you lived in my house. Okay, that'll just give you, because of, because of me, not because of my wife. Uh, <clears throat> futility of trying to become self-righteous, to be good enough to make it. What I'm saying here is that it is futile to try to be good enough to get to heaven because you can't get there. <clears throat> the standard is not the standard for ivory soap that is 99 and 99% pure. You gotta be 100% and none of us make it. It's futile for us to try, but the Pharisees and the people like that of Jesus' day, they wanted, they, they said you gotta eat this food and you got to eat these kinds of dishes and all these all these rules and regulations. You got to be self righteous in order to please God. I'm telling you, it's futile. You can't please God that way. Now, if you're doing keeping law, does that please God? Yes, but it won't please. It won't satisfy His requirements of the law. Uh, <clears throat> in chapter. Five, in the Sermon on Mount, verse 20, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the, of the Pharisees and the scribes, you won't get into heaven. Over in the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the prophet writes, we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Many are so proud of their own perceived goodness that they think that God is impressed by their good deeds. Look, God, look how good I am. And God looks down at their good works, but he also sees their sins. It's like that beautiful, perfect apple that you just picked up out of the bowl on your table. You took a big bite of that juicy apple and it was so sweet and so good. And then you looked down and there was a worm, half of a worm left in that apple. <laughs> kind of disgusting, isn't it? To think of such a thing. That's what God being impressed by, by our good works is all where it goes astray because he not only sees our good works, he also sees our sin. The believer in Jesus is not that way because the blood of Jesus Christ covers my sin. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed, even we have believed in Jesus Christ. Remember, this is Paul writing this to them. And he's saying, man is not justified by the good works that he does. Even we who are preaching this to you, who are these standards of light for you, even we are required to believe in Jesus Christ. None of us, you, you can't good enough yourself to not need Jesus. And so he says, even we believed in Jesus Christ so that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, what's the next word? No flesh can be justified. None. None of us can get there from here. 
not by works of righteousness going on, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So you, do you, I started off by telling you how important the law is and how it's still in vogue for us and still in, in play for us. But I've also pointed out that keeping all the rules isn't, will never get you there. There's a relationship between law and grace. The law isn't there to, to provide grace. The law is there to tell you you need it. And so once you have come to that, the law is your friend. The law is, is not something that, now that I'm a Christian, I can go do anything I want. No, God's still going to hold you accountable to that law. But he's also going to cover your sins so that you'll be justified and righteous, even in times, in those times that for me are frequent, where you fall short of God's perfect standard. So which should you follow, the law or grace? Both. Live by both. But if you're going to leave one of them out, leave out the law. Okay? Because the law won't end up the same place grace does. The law shows you you need a Savior. The grace gives that to you. By the way, when the animals were sacrificed, by sin, uh, sacrificed for sin under the old ceremonial law, old sacrificial system. You know how the forgiveness was enacted, provided, received? It wasn't because they killed an animal. It's because God said, okay, you satisfied the law. I'm going to give you grace. Grace has always been the way that God forgives. Always. When, when Adam and Eve were covered, they should have died but God's grace saved them. Are you following what I'm, what I'm getting at there? That we, um, that we have always, always, always been saved and made righteous with God because he declares what we've done to be satisfactory to him, to, be, to satisfy his, the, the, the requirements to make us back bring us back together again to make us right with one another. It's always by, by grace. Animals can't do that for you. You can get the very, very best animal out there to sacrifice it. God still forgives by his grace. It's always been that way and it always will be. So I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I want you to see the fifth thing. And that is living by, should we live by the law or should we live by grace? Should we live by the law or should we live by grace? You're accountable to the law. So keep it in your mind as you go through your life. There are things I should do and things I shouldn't do. There are things that there are enormous consequences if I do them. The cattle rustlers and the murderers found that out in the Old West. And we'll find out as we drive our car faster than the numbers that are printed on that sign on the side of the road. Say this, you can go this fast. You get what I'm getting at. So the law is there and needs to be 
needs to be observed, but it won't save you. God's grace is what saves you. Remember this, no one has ever been saved by keeping the law because no one except Jesus has ever perfectly kept the law. Grace is not a New Testament invention. Every person that has or ever will be saved are saved by grace. These are things that we've talked about. Not a single person will be in heaven because they kept the law. Everyone that will be there will be there because of Jesus Christ and the grace that he freely gives. But what about the giants of the faith? Let's say, oh, Abraham, the father of faith. In Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, here's what Paul writes. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, our father of faith, has found according to the flesh. What did he find out about all this? For if Abraham was justified by works, he's got something to boast about, but not to God. Because his goodness and his perfection, whatever it might be, doesn't measure up to God's standard. So what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. As good a guy, as good of man of faith, who took God at his word and left his home in a foreign country and came to this place he, he probably had never been to before, didn't even know where he was going, God says, I'll stop you when you get there. Abraham had that kind of works life in pleasing, seeking to please God. But that's never what satisfied God's righteous standard. It was when he believed God. When he believed what God told him. And he believed who God was as the dispenser and the only giver of grace. Then it was counted to him as righteousness. Not even Abraham was saved by his own righteousness. His trust in God resulted in God crediting him with righteousness. And you see that throughout the Old Testament. Throughout this, in fact, through all the Bible, there are people who are held accountable to the law of God and who are given grace by trusting in this God. How do we live in this world, the kingdom life? You live by grace, keeping God's law in mind. Knowing that you can't get there, but Jesus did on your behalf. So I trust him. I trust him with my life. That's not, and this will be the key. Remember I told you that we would look at a key, uh, a key understand, a key lesson in each each message let me tell you the key for today's lesson and that is this one must live in the kingdom the same way that one enters the kingdom by grace through faith you can't get into the kingdom without without god's grace being extended to you and god's grace is received by faith ephesians chapter 2 tells us that's how you live your life every day, too. 
You want to live the, if you want to live the life, seek to please the law, to satisfy the law. Do especially those moral parts of thou shalt and thou shalt not. Those are still in effect for our lives today. But know that you are living not because you're keeping the laws and the rules, but because of God's grace is going to keep you till you make it all the way home. Amen. Living the kingdom life by grace. Will you bow your heads to pray with me, please? Thank you, Father, for this time to dig deep into your word, to see again the amazing sacrifice that Jesus made for our imperfections. Not that we're bad, evil, rotten people, but that we're all sinners. And before your righteousness and your, your perfection, the standards of our lives don't even come close. So that we must say to you, we are sinners. We are separated from you. We haven't kept your laws and your expectations and your standards. And though we try, though we'll try to do it, to do a better job with it tomorrow, Father, I thank you that you don't leave us trusting in how good we can be. But you sent Jesus to come and to set the standard, to set the example, but also to declare that only those who believed in him would not perish, but would, be, would have everlasting life. So, Father, today, as we thought about living by grace, Rather than trying to earn our salvation, I thank you, Father, that today your word teaches us that salvation and forgiveness and justification and righteousness are gifts from you and are given to us through what Jesus Christ did in fulfilling the law and then dying in our place. So today, Father, I, I just pray for those that are hearing me today, those that are here in this room, those that are uh, at home on their listening on their television or their computers. Lord, that today, today, we would make a determination that we are going to live by grace. We're going to believe in Jesus. We are going to allow what his sacrifice uh, for us would bring us in the way of righteousness with you. So Father, in these next few moments, I just pray that, that each one of us would make that determination to live not by how good we can do it, but rather by the grace that you give to us that covers all our failures and our faults. So Lord, have your way in each of our hearts now as we sing together. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.